Hello, everybody. This is episode number six in Get the Let Out. We are very fortunate again this week to have Chief Vincent Mann with us, and uh, he added a great deal to our discussion last week, and I look forward to what he has to say uh, once again this week. Uh, I said last week, this is a voice that needs to be heard, so I'm so glad that Dr. Chuck Stead has been able to bring these uh, people together as he tells uh, this very, very important story. So... Without any further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Chuck Stead. Thank you, Joe. So this uh, section from the chapter called the Ramapos, this would be the Ramapos Part 2 from Get the Let Out. A great deal has been written by historians of Native presence up to 1700, so it is the scant record from then on that requires study. It was a pattern of Algonquin-speaking tribes moving west from Connecticut and taking up residence with southern New York and northern New Jersey tribes. The name Ramapo may well have been originally Ramapu in Connecticut. It shows up earlier there, and it may well have been applied to geophysical features and upon inhabiting a new area, been adopted by people there. This surely was the case for the Lenape Munsee as their initial dialect actually had no R sound, and therefore this was introduced in the early 1700s by Dutch traders, who most probably translated the Lenape name Amapak to Ramapo. Early 18th century was a time of change for the Ramapo people. Dutch trade had come and gone, leaving in its path a great deal of hostility, thanks to the likes of Governor Kieft at New Amsterdam on Manhattan Island. The Dutch-Indian conflict soured all the Lower Hudson natives concerning the interlopers of trade and land acquisition, but by the early 1700s, there were some who worked to establish an equitable relationship with Lenape Munsee. Of these, one, Blandina Bayard, stands out. Bayard was a 48-year-old widow and mother of five. She was the daughter of Sarah Kirstedt, who a generation earlier was a native translator employed by the Dutch at the time that New Jersey and New York were known as New Netherland. Like her mother, Blandina was a native translator and was called upon to participate in negotiations. In 1697, she negotiated her own agreement to purchase the land at Ramapo. She wrote the agreement in Dutch and signed it along with 12 Indians. No other European signed this document which spelled out the sun-dry goods and wares she was to provide. Bayard never actually lived at the Ramapo Trading Post. She maintained her residence in Manhattan and continued to travel about participating in various transactions with Indian groups, serving as translator and conducting her business affairs. Bayard died sometime between 1706 when she sold land in Manchester Township, New Jersey, and 1711 when her will was probated. After her death, The wilderness outpost continued under the supervision of her nephew, Lucas Kirstead, and her daughter-in-law, Rachel Bayard, the third generation of this family, comfortably working with the Indians, working in a fair trade relationship. The Indian presence was strong in the early 1700s at Ramapo and has been noted by archaeologist Edward Lennock, who identifies two Indian longhouses on William Bond's map of the Ramapo track from 1710. These structures are located at the confluence of the Ramapo and Mawal rivers in the Mawal, New Jersey, Suffern, New York area, with another longhouse in Oakland, New Jersey, and two more in Wyckoff, New Jersey. 
Furthermore, he identifies circular wigwams in Ringwood, New Jersey, and in Slotesburg, New York, along the Ramapo River, this leading up until the 1780s. Clan membership traced lineage through the mother's family. This matrilineal descent is noted in the many women signatories for the dwelling agreements with white society. With the constant pressure of Dutch and English land deals, the 18th century saw a great deal of movement among the Indians. Lenape Muncie did not fare well in either the French and Indian War or the American Revolution, although some Lenape Delaware, who had sided with the British and Iroquois, were offered sanctuary by Great Britain in Ontario, Canada, and on Six Nations Reservation. According to Lenape Delaware historian Frank Croft, the Delaware had little choice but to go to war, he tells us. They had been dragged into the hostilities by the manipulative forces of both the English and the French, who used the Indians as pawns in their expensive game that they played to possess the new world. That was Frank Croft's quote from his book. Such was the anti-Indian temperament of the newly formed continental United States that most 19th century historians concur the Indians migrated to the West. And while there was a long, slow migration, it was not as complete as white revisionists would like to believe. Muncie historian Julian Solomon, after quoting John Heckwelder at the length on the migration, has written, While the great majority of the Muncie and Mahakan had left, some sizable remnants remained on or near the old hunting and fishing grounds. During the 19th century, that which was Indian was initially demonized in order to justify the ruthless push westward for resources, and then it was romanticized since the Indian wars had claimed the western territory from the natives. In the east, regional Indians all but vanished from the white histories, and the justification for their disappearance found fertile ground in a racist and condescending portrayal, such as the sort of thing that was written by Frank Green in the late 19th century. He writes, Strange mystery of history, whence the native came, whither he has gone, standing very low in the intellectual growth of the human family, contact with civilization did not elevate, it exterminated him. No evidence is found to show that religion or culture made the least impression on his life. With little or no belief in a controlling spirit, he was found and he disappeared. Hmm. Not all writers were so narrowly imperial in their observation, as can be seen in the pages of Edward Franklin Pearson's family history, in which he recounts the words of George A. Ford, a traveling servant of God, who on behalf of the Ramapo Church roamed the hills over wilderness and solitary country, as he has written, in order to bring Christianity to his flock. In August of 1876, he found at the home of William de Grote, a Mr. John de Grote and a Mr. Samuel de Fries, Sr., husbanding with prayer a handful of corn. Later that same year, Ford was ordained in the Ramapo Church by the Presbytery of Hudson. The following February, communion was celebrated by Evangelist Ford back in the cabin of William de Grote and was attended by family members of the de Fries, de Grote, and the Mann families. And by April, the Brook Church was built on the mountain, this is the Hilburn area, for what was referred to as the colored people. Then in October of 1877, Minister Ford reported that the Corn Festival was celebrated with a gathering of various kinds of gifts, and among them ears of corn. Pearson then writes, 
These fall gatherings have been continued from year to year, always. Edward Lennock found a consistency of these local names in the community when they showed up in an account by traveling tax collector Garrett Valentine in 1905. Valentine was delivering his tax bills to the residents across the Ramapo Mountains along the New York-New Jersey border, accompanied by a reporter from the New York Sun who described the encounters with the Ramapos. When they met with a George de Groot, the reporter noted that his family lived in dugouts and log huts, their chief occupation being basket-making. The reporter described de Groot as a young man with a coppered-colored face, the two traveled along the trail and soon discovered an historic wood road, a corduroy road, later known as the Butler Road. Eventually, they traveled north and came upon a new road, also a wood road, which led them uphill and to a clearing containing two dwellings occupied by members of the Man Branch of Mountaineers. The building stood across the line in New York at a spot known as the Cranberry Bog. This would be today Cranberry Lake up in the Pearson Estates. From there, a man, that is, a man named man, guided them to the house of Manuel de Groot. Before his journey was over, Valentine had walked 15 miles and encountered more members of the de Groot family line. His final observation was that these residents carried on farming and maintained some farm animals, a rural self-sufficient community. Clearly, these people had continued residence in the Ramapo Hills from the colonial times and into the 20th century. In 1908, anthropologist Frank Specht, working among the Ramapos, collected baskets and woodenware from the community. Edward Lennock has documented some of these objects, including berry baskets, splint baskets with and without lids, eel traps, and carved spoons. It is his opinion that the Bureau of Indian Affairs erroneously dismissed the Indians' petition for federal recognition in their review of these same cultural objects. According to the BIA, the Indian-like artifacts collected by Speck were in fact produced by the Pitt-Conklin group of woodcarvers and basket makers further north in Rockland County rather than the Ramapo Mountain Indian settlements. But Leck reviewed, Lennock reviewed the conclusion regarding the baskets and woodenware collected so many years earlier by Speck. At the Museum of Natural History, he uncovered the objects and attached to the object inventory, a note by Speck identified these things as being collected from the Jackson Whites, a pejorative term used to describe the Ramapo Mountain Indians, not to be confused with white woodcarvers. Furthermore, in his study of the Ralph Sessions book, Woodsmen, Mountaineers, and Bakis, which the BIA apparently cited as their reasoning for the determination that the objects were from the Pitt-Conklin group, Lennock found that Sessions at no time made this assertion. In 1993, the New York Times reported that the Ramapos did not successfully prove that they had been continuously identified as a separate, distinct Indian community, that it had not lived as a community before 1850, that it could not show continuous political activity since first contact with Europeans, and that it did not present evidence indicating descent from either a historic tribe or individual Indians. One is moved to question by what methodology does the Bureau of Indian Affairs review an application for recognition? 
but such an inquiry would necessitate one to even recognize the Bureau to begin with. The Bureau came into existence in the late 19th century as an extension of how the dominant society would continue to deal with a nation within a nation. Any research on the part of the Bureau, or for that matter, on the part of any academic institution seeking federal approval, grants, subsidies, underwriting, what have you, would be screened by social and economic supervisors. That is to say, it would be seen through the imperial eyes which describes an approach that assumes Western ideas about the most fundamental things are the only ideas possible to hold, the only ideas which make sense of the world, of reality, of social life, and of human beings. Linda Tayu Smith, a critic of the historic and philosophical base of Western research, has argued that the Western model to indigenous people covers a sense of innate superiority and a desire to bring its own form of progress into the lives of indigenous people. That ultimately, the Western model still considers indigenous people as specimens, not as humans. In a worldview that considers people to be specimens, story matters little. But genetic testing matters a lot. Uh, <laughs> the more I hear, uh, the more I hear, the more frustrated I get. I can't imagine what it must feel like, Chief, to you and to your people over the years, to be separated from the rest of uh, of the world because you're not following some pattern that the white world has set up. It really is kind of disgusting in a way. But my elder, he had a very simple way of looking at these things. I was raised, for the most part, in his little deli, which was in the middle of Englewood, which was right in the middle of a completely black section, a completely African-American Yeah, I remember. Area. I remember that place. Yeah. yeah. I asked him early on, why is there, we don't seem to have any problem, Dad, you know, Pop, you or me, and these people don't seem to have any problem with us. I play with them out in the back of the store here in the backyard, and we hang out together and, and have fun and everything else. Why is it that when we go back to premise to our little white neighborhood, that there's a whole, a very different way of speaking about these good people who, who we depend upon right now for our income because we're a little delicatessen grocery store there and he he just said you know he said joey it all goes back to ignorance what people don't understand they fear what they fear their defense is is hatred and separation push them away put them in in a small place and 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 constrain them and that that way will be a will be safe mm. Chuck, in your sense of things, having grown up in, in Hilburn, and the chief sense of things, why? Why do we do this? Hmm. I, uh, I, I want to I hear what, what Chief Mann has to say, but I, I, I'll just say this much. I, I was sent to a Catholic school because my mom wanted me to be Catholic, but it was also a white school. And we often, us kids, us white kids who would be sitting around the cafeteria in, in the white school, would often observe that we came from a neighborhood that wasn't just white. But how come we're in a school that's just white? And, and we'd be told, well, the, the people who aren't white have another way of understanding Jesus or another way of understanding Christianity or just another religion. And, it, and yes, culturally that was true. 
But there was definitely a, uh, a preference that was going on here. And I encountered, and my mom was Catholic, and that's basically, she hoped I'd be a priest one day, so that's basically why she sent me there. But I definitely encountered in, in the school I was in children who were sent there by families who hated people who weren't white because, you know, I pick it up in the way the kids talked. And, and the, the sisters would try to correct them, but there were kids who were just hardline prejudiced kids, and they were, they were with us in the same school, which was a real dichotomy because it's all about Christianity and, you know, yeah. loving one another and the, one another's brothers, and we're all here together. And that was a challenge for me uh, because I came home to a village that was also racist but was also mixed, and uh, that— it was always a challenge, and thank God for my sister Muffin, you know, the beatnik in the family, because she would, she was the contrarian. She would verbalize a lot of this stuff in, in, at our supper table, in our forum, and that was important. I think growing up, it's important to be able to talk about this. Yeah. yeah. Chief? You know, dominant society has always tried to pull into slaves, and they did so either with guns and bayonets, or they did it with religion. And I, I think that through the course of time, when the people were being sent here from Europe, then you had a lot of people who was, were escaping Europe for religious freedom. And so when we hear about board and teaching them, there's another part of the story that goes with that. Reverend Ford, his father had became ill overseas, and he left what we know as New Jersey and went to his father. When his father passed, Reverend Ford decided that he was going to build a boys' school up on a hill. That boys' school, over the years, has been a refugium for all kinds of uh, ethnic people, and that building was actually built in Aleppo, Syria. Wow. That building... That building, as of three or four years ago, was still standing. And uh, over the front doorway of that, um, it actually says Ramapo. Ramapo. There's a link. What? And, how long ago did, did uh, Reverend Ford go over there? Like, do you have a rough um, idea? I think that it was uh, the very late 1800s. Right. That would have been correct. Uh, the, the Reverend I talked about earlier in the, in the reading last that's week. That's correct. That's the same human. Right, right. Um, George, George. You know, and our, yep, and our understanding is that he was preaching amongst our people. was really in preparation for him dealing with indigenous people in other parts of the world. And Syria, of all places, ethnic cleansing, right? Uh, we see that today. We see that Syria has an immense amount of, of uh, refugees. And to bring that circle all the way around again. Last year, we received seeds from uh, the Experimental Farm Network. There are seeds for a certain type of lettuce. And I was told by our friend Nathan that he was given those seeds, and he grew them out and then sent the seeds, more seeds, back. And when I looked down at the package, it said Aleppo, Syria on it. And I was just floored because what he had asked us is, would we like to grow these out on our farm for these refugee, Syrian refugees? I was just amazed because we don't believe in coincidences. And that full story, once we grow those seeds out this year, 
two more seeds to send those back, the story will be complete. And that journey of how we're connected, Syria and the Ramapo Munsee people, really is an amazing history there. It really is an amazing you know, history. It really is. And, you know, speaking back on uh, some of the things that Chuck was, uh, Dr. Stead was saying, you know, I, I, when we were growing up, we had a, um, an aunt and uncle, and his name was Sam Bondina. They owned a little uh, vegetable stand in uh, Haskell. New Jersey. That name goes all the way back to that trading post that actually is in, in what is now Mawa, New Jersey. And so when we think about the, our connections to all of that past history, why is that history told without us in it? We clearly, based upon what Dr. Chuck Stettis was reading there from his book, The Treaty of Easton in 1758, was for us Muncie-speaking people to relinquish title to the rest of the land of, of New Jersey in southern New York. And one of the things that our ancestors reserved for their descendants was the right to hunt, to fish, and to gather. Academics, historians, David Cohen, Ostriker, Donald Trump, uh, Torricelli, uh, Rokoma, all those people have it all wrong. And the last thing that our ancestors had uh, reserved as a right when they gave those lands up was the right to strip bark from trees in 1758. Now, we would only reserve the right to strip bark from trees and to hunt and to fish and to gather. It was because we were not going anywhere. We weren't leaving. And proof is in the pudding because eight years after 1758 Treaty of Easton, you have Peter Hausenclever as a surveyor who comes to the Ramapo Mountains and in what we know now as Ringwood. He comes across these Indians living in these dome-shaped hovels. These dome-shaped hovels obviously, you know, are wigwams. And so that even goes even deeper to say that the Ramapo community has never left. The only place that we've ever left from was from the Minnesink area, Ramapo Mountains, to Connecticut, Western Connecticut as we know it now. In the 1600s, because of the pressure here, some of our people went over there. Matter of fact, we have a copy of an original land deed that is on the wall, restored in the town of Stanford. And it says, I, Chief Katona, the chief of the, all Ramapo Indians living in that area. And that is also the area where there was a huge massacre of Ramapo people. Even the word Ramapo was changed because we, as Muncie-speaking people, are not an R dialect. We're an L dialect. And it's not really Ramapo or Ramapo. When you grab those two O's together, it makes the sound of O. Our original name of the place in which we were living was called Lamawo. Lamawo means downward slanting. It's a reference to the mountain. We were the mountain Muncie people. I think it's even referenced in the Treaty of Easton when we were asked to come to that treaty because we refused to come to the 1756 treaty, which was for the Unami-speaking people and where the Brotherton Reservation was set aside for them. This is fascinating. Yeah. I'm taken by the, there's little nuances in the things that you're, that I'm learning from you 
like you realize that racism has its own vocabulary, doesn't it? Uh, Dome-shaped oh, yeah. hobbles, okay? That's part of the, the vocabulary of racism. And, and it's... It's, a, it's an environmental justice, right? Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Everything from contact to today, everything that has happened either to us physically, spiritually, has been and still is environmental justice when it comes to indigenous people. Right, around the world, not just here. Right. Our ceremonial stone landscapes, right? So the places in which our ancestors manipulated stone features or made stone features, you know, when they are bulldozed, when they're removed, those prayers are gone forever. It's been recorded way back in the 1600s, I think, where our ancestors would be walking along and they would come to this particular place and they would pick up a stone and place this stone on a pile of stones, and it was done in a ceremonial way, right? That wasn't us who wrote that, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's not us who wrote, you know, in 1923, in a newspaper article about these three canoe bottoms that floated to the surface in what was called Whittock Lake, which is now Glenwild Lake, and it wasn't us who researched them and dated them and presented to the world that these were made of an 800 to a thousand year old extinct cedar and belonging to the ancient tribe, the Ramapo Indians. That was the Smithsonian Hay Foundation. And so there are numerous, as a matter of fact, that one canoe bottom, there's one that's been missing, but we think we located it and we may actually get that return to our people. But one of those canoe bottoms, you can actually go see at the uh, Patterson Museum. I actually was able to put my hand on there and got a splinter, which is still in my hand today. Um, and I looked at it as a blessing, right? Sure. Um, Why not? And, and so, you know, there there has always been this downplay of who we are. And the reason why is because that same thing that was created at, after contact and when, you know, Dutch settlers started to come in droves was about owning the land really does come down to that. Even in this modern time, uh, 1994, the BIA said that we absolutely had no Native American blood in us whatsoever. They said that we were Afro-Dutch. And then when we, our lawyers began to call them out, uh, we decided that we were going to sue the BIA. And so we did. And in 2000, 2000, 2001, in federal court, uh, the judge asked the BIA's lawyer, are you, are they or are they not Native Americans? And that lawyer refused to answer. And the judge was getting very upset. And eventually, you know, the judge, by getting upset, you know, is being demanding of this lawyer. And then the lawyer goes, Your Honor, it's never been a question. And the judge said, so they won that right. And the, the lawyer said again, Your Honor, it's never been a question of whether or not they're Native American. Now, right then and there, the federal government perjured itself. Nobody acted upon it, but they perjured themselves because of what they literally wrote in black and white in 1994. Now, the judge says to the lawyer for the BIA, so what's the problem? And the answer came back, well, we don't know which historical tribe of first contact they come from. Well, the federal government wouldn't wouldn't know that. The only people who would know that would be the people in which we're talking about. And yet, there is documentation 
right? That it, in Connecticut, I keep Katona, Sachem of, of, of the Ramapo Indians, who was his uncles, Tapgao, Taphouse, Tapiao, right? However you want to say it, Tapas. Tapgao married into the most influential family of the Muncie-speaking people, and guess where they lived? In the Ramapo Mountains. Honest was, was Katona's grandfather. Tapgao was one of his sons. Onyx was one of his sons. Those are, and Manus was there. Yoris was there. Tapgao was there. And in the, in the very late 1600s, they ended up coming back to this land here. And my great-grandfather, Chief Manus, you know, he is, he is responsible for selling, however you want to call it, gifting away, land deeding, titling, um, you know, 42,000 acres, which became the town of uh, Lotesburg, New York. And that's just one of them. His sons, Peter and Ari, were named after Mr. LaRue, whose house, right, is the LaRue Hopper House, which was in front of where the trading post was that we heard before about, you know, uh, Bondina. And then you hear me say that I had an uncle, right, whose last name was Bondina. So we have always been here. They knew who we were. And so the judge said to the lawyer, well, and to us, you know, excuse me for my analogy, but what I see here is that you're finding something, it's like a prepackaged loaf of bread. You're finding something wrong with the package, something wrong with the yeast, something wrong with the flour, something wrong with the water, something wrong with the salt. Mm-hmm. And so in the end, even though the judge did see that the BIA had, they didn't, they did not apply their regulations, which was reasonable likelihood. And they implied impossible burden of proof to us. They used David Cohen's book. And then when we called them out in a legal way, they said, oh, no, we're not doing that. We won't. And then, you know, when we mentioned about this impossible burden of proof, then they were like, oh, well, we're not going to do that anymore after, you know, after this. Mm-hmm. And so the judge didn't feel as if he had the authority to change what the BIA had said. And in fact, he did. It's just he, uh, being of the Third Circuit Court, had a compadre there who was also from the Third Third Circuit Court, and her last name was Trump, right? And and so, yeah, it's it's an incredible history. It is one of persistence and survival. It is the spirit of ourselves and of our ancestors. It's not just the spirituality that couldn't be stripped away from us. We continue to this day to live as Native Americans in a modern world. Um, if our ancestors had a chainsaw or a, uh, a bazooka, you know, in the 1600s, they would have used it mm-hmm. right? yeah. if they were being attacked. Clearly, that our ancestors weren't that way. Otherwise, you know, the, the Dutch people in the Netherlands would have never even known this place existed. Absolutely. You know? and just to give you another example of what I'm talking about when, you know, it basically ends up trying to be paper genocide, right? Um, and the reason why it becomes paper genocide is because you can't stand this all up anymore and put us into that public lethal gas chamber that they threatened us with in 1923 either. But as an example of what I mean is that most Americans believe that the British all showed up with their guns and their cannons and told the Dutch, you need to get out of here and we're taking this over, and not a shot was fired. Well, one thing is true. The Dutch did vacate. New Netherlands, and the British did take it over. But it wasn't because there was a threat of war. It was because the Dutch, being traitors, faded Manhattan 
for islands on the space on the spice trade route. Well, we've gone uh, we've gone a little over time on this one, but I think for a very good reason that we're learning a lot about history. And what I'm hoping is that next week we talk a little bit about what we, all of us, can do to try to move us in the direction of righteousness, uh, of doing the right thing, of Always a good journey, direction of righteousness. Yes, like absolutely. That. Yeah. Once again, I want to thank you, Chief uh, Chief Mann and uh, Dr. Chuck Stead for, for these important episodes. I look forward to talking more about what we all can do next week. Thanks so much, everybody, for joining us. We'll be back next week with another chapter of Get the Let Out. For a word from our favorite sponsor, the Montgomery Book Exchange. It's your hometown used bookstore located at 61A Clinton Street in the heart of the Montgomery, New York Business District. Folks, you're going to love the book exchange. This is a place where great books survive the test of time, where you can enjoy a book read by readers a generation before you. You might even find notes in the margins giving you an insight as to what mattered most to that previous reader. That's how the Montgomery Book Exchange turns a great book into a shared experience. And the Montgomery Book Exchange is known throughout the Hudson Valley and beyond for innovations like their 20 for $20 book stacks or their intimate author readings and signing experiences. How about their member-driven book club selections and book club talks, their monthly Zoom and in-person book auctions, and Handmade Montgomery. This is a wonderful event featuring local artisans and hundreds of beautiful handmade crafts and keepsakes. And how about getting store credits in the form of book bucks? Bring your well-loved or gently used books in for a store credit. Now, it's closed on Mondays, but it's open Tuesdays through Saturdays from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. and on Sunday from 12 noon to 4 p.m. Want more information? Just go to MontgomeryBookExchange.com or call them at 845-764-1787. That's 845-764-1787. Now, there's one more thing. They even have a special location at 8 Factory Street dedicated to your young readers. They call it the Children's Chapter, and it features a reading garden where your children can discover the joy of reading in a wonderful and stimulating learning environment. Now, my kids are all 30-something now, but I have four beautiful grandchildren, Jimmy, Sienna, Stella, and JJ, and I'm bringing all four of them down to the Children's Chapter. Also at this location, you'll find Miss Claire's Music Covered, featuring the award-winning research-based Kinder Music Program. The Children's Chapter is open Wednesdays through Saturdays. Check the website for specific class times that match your child's age. You can contact the Children's Chapter at 845-522-9652. MontgomeryBookExchange.com, your hometown used bookstore. You're going to love this place.